a series, uh, a very short series. Actually, this is going to end up being a two-week series. We'll, we'll finish it out this morning. Uh, we'll do something else next week, and then we'll, we'll launch into something after, uh, after the preview service. But uh, just a, a short series on Jesus' prediction of his own death. And then his commands to his, his disciples or his discussion with his disciples following that. Last week we talked about how, how Jesus was, was talking about how he was going to be delivered. We ta- he was going to suffer. After that he would, he would, he would die. He, he, he told his disciples about that and it resulted in rebuke. That is what happened. The disciples took it upon themselves or, or Peter specifically took it upon himself to rebuke Jesus for this prediction. We're going to talk about the next two such predictions of Jesus in the book of Mark, where he predicts that he is going to die. And we're going to talk about how the disciples responded to that. And then we're going to talk about what Jesus says to them each time. I'll make this note. It would seem that Jesus is going to three times talk about his own death, his impending death, how uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of the time are going to have him put to death. Uh, He's going to talk about that each time, and then he's going to follow that up with instructions to the disciples, and those instructions are going to seem amazingly similar. They're going to seem to be the same instructions each time. It is difficult sometimes as a pastor when you're preaching through, and I'll just, just as a note on what we do, uh, Dave uh, Block, Pastor Dave Block and I will discuss what are we going to preach on, what are we going to, to teach on. We will decide on that, and then typically we just sort of preach straight through that. Historically, we choose whole books of the Bible. We study them and teach them. In this case, we've chosen smaller blocks because of the preview services. We're trying to do kind of three-week series, but we're trying to stay textual. In other words, to follow what the text says. One of the, one of the difficulties as a, as a preacher sometimes is that when you're dealing with a passage, you sometimes feel like, hasn't this been said before? And it's difficult because you feel like you're saying the same thing again and again and again. The reality, however, is if, if I as a very imperfect uh, teacher and preacher uh, feel that or, or feel as though I'm, I'm saying it's only in this case because Jesus, who is not an imperfect teacher, is doing it. Jesus, for some reason, feels compelled, and we'll talk about why, feels compelled to repeat the same instructions to his, to his disciples. He's going to say one thing to them, and they're going to, to have one response. And then a little while later, he's going to be speaking to them again. And he's going to say essentially the exact same thing. He's going to switch it up a, a little bit. Or, or in, in the later passage, he may expound on it. But he says to them essentially the, the same thing. I would suggest that part of the reason that happens, or, or a lot of the reason that happens, is because he's talking to humans. He's talking to his disciples, his disciples who walked with him in the, in the flesh, his disciples who spent every day with him. He's speaking to them, and it's being recorded for our future benefit now as also disciples of Jesus, but disciples who've, who've not been literally in his presence. And Jesus must have decided that what he has to say is, is, is so important that it be said more than one time, or... He must, with his awareness of who you and I are as humans, be aware that we need to hear this more than, than once. And so 
Uh, I'm unapologetic about, about the reality that it seems similar in, in this sense. It is Jesus who speaks it, and he speaks it several times. And so last week he said he makes a prediction of his, of his own death, and then he tells them that they must take up their cross and follow him. They have to go where he goes. Their response when they, when they hear that is rebuke. And so hold that in your mind as we go into chapter 9, where Jesus again is going to foretell his death. In verse, uh, we're going to begin in verse 30, where Jesus says this, they, they being the disciples, Jesus, went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So he's already told them once before, I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be killed. I'll resurrect, don't worry, but I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to experience the cross. You need to experience the cross too. He says that to them, and the first time, Peter rebukes him. You can't say that, right? The second time he says that, even though it's the second time, they just don't have any clue what he's saying. They get confused. The question on why they're confused is an interesting one. He said it to him before. Apparently, it had enough of an impact last time he said it to him that, that they... they uh, that Peter decided to rebuke him, but this time when he says essentially the same thing, they just are confused. My suspicion when we read this, that part of their confusion comes from the reality that they don't want to hear what he has to say. Sometimes when we want someone to be saying something else, when we prefer that they be saying something else, we hear them saying something else, right? It is very easy to interpret what is being said through the lens of what we want to be said. Jesus, in this case, predicts his own death. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And at, when he is killed, after three days he will rise. They don't have any clue what he's saying. Like, well, he said that. But instead of going, Jesus, could we just clarify that? They don't ask. My suspicion on this is the reason they don't ask is, again, they don't want to know. You've been in situations, I am sure, where you hear something, it's confusing to you, but you're afraid to ask because you don't really want the answer for what they're about to say. You're like, I don't completely understand that. I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand what they said to me. But if I ask, then I'm going to be responsible for what they say. I'm going to have to deal with what, what they say. I'm so they, they, two things are... One of two things is happening here. Either they don't ask because they're afraid of how it will make them look. They're afraid to admit that they don't understand what Jesus says. Or they simply don't ask because they're afraid of what Jesus is saying and they don't really want to understand. This would make sense. Jesus has already told them, told them the first time, that he is going to be delivered, he's going to be turned over, he's going to die, and he tells them, you have to take up your cross. They probably know that if they ask, there's implications, so there's a reality for who they are and what they must do and how they must respond to it. And they're like, I, nope. They step back. So that's part number one of what happens. Jesus again 
predicts his death. The first time he predicts his death, he gets rebuked. The second time he predicts his death, they get confused, right? The first time after he predicts his death, he tells them he's going to a cross and tells them they must pick up their cross. Here's what he's going to teach them again. So after in verse uh, 33, after they hear him say that, after they just don't ask because they don't really want to know, verse 33 happens. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, Jesus is Jesus. He knows what they were discussing. He's similar to, in, in this sense, or on a much greater sense, sometimes parents know what kids are discussing and what kids are, are saying, or they know what they, they've done. So there are occasions in my life where I've heard, for instance, from a teacher at the school what a child has done, and when they get home, I'll sometimes say to them, so, how was school? And I don't always say to them, your teacher called me, how was school? I don't always say, by the way, your teacher told me what happened. I just say, how was school? And a lot of times they will give a, 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 a flowery retelling, a, a flowery recounting of how their day was. And they say, that's interesting. Did anything happen with Mr. So-and-so? And, -so? and um, depending on, uh, on, on how caught they feel, they might try and say, well, no, well. And then usually it comes out, right? Jesus is employing sort of the same technique here. He knows what's going on in their call. He says, so guys, what were you discussing on the way? But, and this is, this is a good move, uh, the disciples, I find, are often like children in the way they behave. They keep silent. He says, so what were you talking about? Their response, almost teenager-ish, is nothing. They keep silent. Why do they keep silent? Because they don't want to tell Jesus what they were discussing. Then what does he say? For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Here's, here's Jesus uh, uh, extrapolating or explaining what his plan is, explaining that soon he's going to be delivered over, explaining that soon he is going to be put to death, explaining that soon he's going to be beaten, soon he's going to be nailed to a cross, soon he is going to die, and he explains to them, he's already explained to them, like we talked about last week, that the death that he is about to die is going to be the kind of death that the disciples might very likely die. And even if they don't experience it physically, the way of, of being a disciple will result often in suffering, and it always needs to result in following of Jesus. Where Jesus goes, we also go. The word Christian means Christ follower. If you're not taking up your cross, you're not following. And so he's explained to them already what the way of following him is. He explains to them and he makes the point again. He's already told them how he is where he goes. That's where the disciples will go. He's predicted his death again. They ignore his prediction of his death or they're confused by it, but don't ask. And the reason is they want to get on to other things. Now, these are the disciples. These are the ones who are closest with Jesus. These are the ones who spend all kinds of time with Jesus. And the reason they don't want to ask, answer Jesus when he asks him, what were you discussing? The reason is this. They've been arguing about who is the greatest. Now, we live in a culture that often discusses who the greatest is. In fact, if you, uh, if you are like me and you watch a lot of sports, we have this discussion about who is the goat. And usually you would think of a goat as a bad thing, but goat means the greatest of all 
time. And especially if you're talking in, 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 uh, in basketball, there is a lot of debate, is Michael Jordan the GOAT? Uh, the answer is no, we live in Michigan. 1989-90, Detroit Pistons, bad boys for life. Michael Jordan is not the greatest of all time. No bias there. Then the people say, but is LeBron James the GOAT? Is LeBron James the greatest of all time? I'm not a Cleveland fan, but I don't like Michael Jordan, so sometimes I jump on that, that bandwagon. Some people say, is Steph Curry uh, the greatest of all time? Is he the GOAT? Uh, the answer to that is probably no, even though I want that one to be true. But if you're into sports, we have these, these discussions. Uh, my youngest son, Noah, loves to read nonfiction. It's his favorite kind of reading. He's always reading nonfiction about sports, and he's coming home and going, well, who is the greatest running back ever? Uh, the correct answer uh, and this one is the correct answer who's the greatest running back ever is Barry Sanders the other people in the conversation are people like uh, like uh, Gail Sayers uh, uh, people uh, um, uh, from from Chicago there's other people in, in the discussion but we have these sorts of discussions all the time in our house and the reason we have our these discussions in our house is because it's in our culture right it's just more prevalent in sports right because most of you like if your your job is is to uh, is to do medical billing and coding you don't usually brag about that or you probably don't have discussions at your job about like who was the goat in medical billing and coding. Well, I think everybody knows that's Kelly Anderson, circa 1989. That girl could both be medical and code. I don't really know what medical coding and billing does. It just came to me. So, uh, but, but we don't discuss that. Like if you work at the, at an office, uh, in the office, you're not usually like, I am the greatest. Muhammad Ali, the boxer is famous for saying that. I am the greatest. You usually don't do that at your job, I hope right? Uh, like even if you are like the greatest doctor, or you were the greatest nurse, or you're the greatest whatever you are, we don't typically do that. Even if we're competitive, I've at various times worked in, in, in factories, and we would try and be the greatest or the fastest at making parts, but we don't typically brag about that in the, in, in the same way. And yet, though we don't brag about it, it is built into our culture, this idea of individual and personal greatness. If you look at what's coming out of, out of uh, if you went to Facebook and looked at what's coming out of BuzzFeed or other places like that where they're giving you life advice, that life advice is usually geared to personal fulfillment and personal greatness, how to be the best you that you can be. Um, as a parenthesis, that's not necessarily wrong, but their answer of how to get there is wrong because it's different than how Jesus would define that. All of which to say is that we live in a culture which emphasizes again and again this idea, be great, you're the greatest. You need to be the best there's ever been. And so we, we live in a, a tension of both pursuing personal greatness and the reality that we're really not that good in general. The biggest problem with me being great is me. The biggest problem with you being great is you. It's not somebody else. It's, it's this reality. You were born in sin. You were born an enemy of God. You were born uh, with, without goodness. You were born without righteousness. The problem is you wake up each and every morning, even if you are in Christ, you are in him, but you wake up with vestiges of the, of the old man, confirming this reality that you are just not that great. 
right? And yet culture tells you to be great. Disciples, the same thing. The disciples are walking with Jesus. Their job in this case, right? Their job is literally to be disciples or followers of Jesus. Jesus then gets to set the agenda for how following him happens. The agenda he sets is one that goes through the cross. He explains to them that they're going to have to take up their cross and follow him. That's how he, what he has taught them. And while he is teaching that, they begin to debate who's the greatest disciple. No, I'm the greatest disciple. No, 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 no. You can't be the greatest disciple. I'm the greatest disciple, which is interesting because being a disciple of Jesus comes with cross taking up and it comes with humility. And so what are they bragging? Hey, you know who's best at taking up their cross and following Jesus? That's me, right? Like, are they, are they bragging? You know who's the most humble? Me, I'm, I'm the most humble person to ever live. There's never been anyone so great at being humble as I. What are they doing? It doesn't make any sense because, because Jesus is telling them to follow me is about a cross and their debate comes back to, but I want to be great. That happens in our culture too. We want to be great. And, and the way in which we want to be great is outside of the, of the teaching of Scripture. And so they don't answer him. Uh, they keep silent for they had argued with each other about who was the greatest. So he sits down, Jesus sits down, verse 35, and calls the 12, and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. I don't suspect that you'll see that piece of advice in the next BuzzFeed article on Facebook, right? If you want to be uh, elsewhere, if it says if you want to be great in God's kingdom, if you want to be first, then you must be last in a servant of all. This was just as antithetical to their thinking as it is to ours, right? They want to be great. They're following Jesus because they grew up in, in, in a Jewish background. They grew up looking for a Jewish Messiah. Their understanding of a Messiah is largely triumphalistic. They expect the Messiah to come, and when the Messiah comes, he's going to wipe out the other nations that have been persecuting, uh, uh, persecuting the, the children of Israel for years and years and years and years. And so their expectation is that when Jesus came, that he would come and he would wipe them out, and they would get a coronation and they would walk in and they'd be a part of the entourage of the greatness of, of, of Jesus Christ. They want to be a part of that. And so they're expecting, uh, they're expecting greatness in, in, the, in the cultural sense. They're expecting greatness in that sense. And Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Jesus flips their expectations of what it means to be great on its head. It is different than what they would expect. And it's certainly different than what we would expect, right? I will be honest, I am no different than any person else. I would like to experience in the human sense greatness, right? I would like to experience in the human sense recognition, right? I planted Crosswinds uh, in the year 2001. At that time, I was 25. I had an expectation that when I planted Crosswinds that it would blow up and that we would be some sort of mega church and that all the people would know and that they would, they would know my name. And certainly it's all about Jesus, but, but I, I just wanted sort of a supporting, I, I didn't want to win the Oscar. I just wanted a supporting actor mention, right? It's Jesus Christ with Dave Drake. 
right? Uh, and so there was an expectation or a thought process in my mind, I'll plant that, that church and people will fly in from all over the world to come and to experience and to convert to Christ. And then the world will know and then there'll be books and articles and all of this kind of thing. And so God in his goodness gave me none of that, right? God in his goodness saved me from the, the success. God in his goodness saved me from, from, from greatness in, in, that, in that sense. And frankly, he saved me from a way of doing, uh, of doing church, a way of, of, of church happening that I honestly don't believe is consistent with scripture anyway. So God did protect me from me and from my own conception of greatness. But the reality is, even some days still, I was saying the other day, uh, the way that... Um, uh, uh, the way that we function. So uh, Pastor Dave Black and I are always out uh, looking and recruiting and thinking about not only church plants in Lee, but where does that next church plant happen? How do we make sure that there's walkable congregations and neighborhoods all over Grand Rapids, developing uh, relationships, developing uh, a background, developing all of these these sorts of things. And uh, honestly, we've had a, had a couple weeks where God's been bringing some things together like in, in, in crazy ways. And, and I was saying to someone, uh, the, the, as, it, as it's coming together, it, it, sometimes I say, you know, one of the greatest things that happened is like, I don't care about like recognition or being known anymore, which is, is, is the greatest half-truth I've ever told, right? It's a really, really good half-truth. The reality is, what I realized is, uh, similar to in the hip-hop game, if I could go hip-hop, uh, and I think this translates into like indie music too and maybe into, into metal, but there's, there, there's, there's bands, usually in music, that are like underground, and they're super cool because they're underground, and they're super cool because they don't need anybody else's recognition, right? And so there's like the underground bands, and people really, really like the underground bands, and in a lot of places, if you're the dude who discovers the underground band, you're kind of cooler because they're like, yeah, man, do you hear that band? They're underground. They don't need any label, right? And so uh, there's like underground bands in, in hip-hop. I think there's underground bands in the indie world. There's probably underground bands in every style of music. And there are people who appreciate like the underground band. And it is fun to discover something before it goes commercial, right? And what I discovered or what I realized about myself is, is that while I said, I'm so glad that I'm not pursuing being known in the med, that's true, but there's a reality in, in that I have or I do appreciate this reality of being like the top dude in the underground, in the underground church planting game, right? Because we plant in urban neighborhoods, not suburban neighborhoods. We plant in places where other people won't go. We plant, but there is this reality that sometimes people come to us and they start to appreciate what we're doing. And so it's, it's, a, it's a half truth to say that I've moved on from wanting to be known. No, my flesh in its brokenness, constantly wants to be known. I don't want to be known as the megachurch pastor anymore, but I do kind of want to be known as like that rebel pastor doing that underground thing that was successful outside of their game, right? And that's not right. In fact, that's straight up wrong, but that's a reality that I struggle with daily because I don't think that many of us move on for our, from our desire for greatness. We desire it often, and so we're not honest about it often, but we need to look inside and say, in what way and where am I desiring to be great? Where am I desiring to be known? Where am I desiring the accolades to happen? Because the reality is this, I am not due any recognition. I am not due any accolades. I don't need to be known, right? Uh, uh, one, uh, one 
great uh, missionary of past years was, was famous for saying this, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Let that be my creed. Let that be my credo. Let that be my mantra every day. And, but if I'm honest, I have to fight to make that true because the, the desire for greatness is always there. And so it's not just, though, in me, what I'm suggesting to us is that it's in all of us no matter where we are and it interferes with with everything and so our desire to be great the thing about being great means you're above somebody and the thing about being above somebody is that 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 all of those things creep in all of that emotional stuff uh creeps in so that you're like well i'm better than them or 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 what if you just think you're better than them or you're convinced you're better than them but you're not getting recognition like them right what if I'm better at what I do, but that dude over there is getting recognition. See, then I'm broken. Then I'm hurting. Then I'm upset because so-and-so got recognition, and why didn't I get recognition? That's not fair, and it is not just in church planting. It's not just in the stage. That's out there too, right? We tease about it, but someplace at your job and someplace in your life or someplace in the church, you're looking for greatness. And the reason we look for greatness is because we have not fully understood what Jesus means when he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. We are constantly searching to put ourselves above somebody because we are constantly searching to fill up something inside of us, to fulfill something inside of us that can only be filled by the Lord God and only be filled by Jesus and only be filled when we take up our cross and follow him and yet we try and fill it with our own personal stuff and so we do not like just like the disciples did not like to hear this if anyone would be first he must be last and be a servant of all all right I get servant of some right we do servant of some because especially sometimes if you're a servant of some, you network and you get to go up the ladder. And that's your, he doesn't say that. He said, if anyone would be great in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant of some, network and go up the ladder. He doesn't say that. He says, if anyone would, would, would come after me, if anyone would be first, he must be a last of all and a servant of all. We do not like to hear that. But it applies to every bit of your life. In every bit of my life, that is what the kingdom is about. That is about Jesus following. So Jesus says that to them, and the disciples, the disciples don't get it. They don't get it, so he teaches it. He, he, he tells them about the fact that he's going to die, and they, they just don't get it, so they don't ask. So then in chapter 10, it, it continues on. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples again in verse 32 of chapter 10. It says this, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happening. So Jesus is walking. He has his disciples near him. Jesus is leading. His disciples are near him. And then there's crowds following, but the crowds are kind of, crowds are kind of afraid because they don't know what Jesus is up to and they've seen the things that Jesus does and they want to be near that but 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 the power of the things Jesus did and the opposition that Jesus is experiencing they're they're beginning to be afraid but then Jesus calls his 12 to him again and he begins to tell them begins to tell them what will happen to him saying 
See, we were going up to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So, Jesus has told them, chapter eight: If you're going to come after me, you've got to have a cross like me. In chapter nine, he says, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. Then he's going to come back and explain to them again what it means to take up this cross. And this is the most uh, intense description of the three of what that cross means. I'll read it again. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him. And after three days he will rise. He says it to them again. It's emphasizing, again, this is what's going to happen. This is the way you're walking. If you follow me, you've got to follow me. This is what you're following, right? The first time he said that they rebuked him. The second time they were confused by him, right? First of rebuke, second time confusion. This time they just ignore it. There's no response for the disciple, from the disciples this time. They just ignore what Jesus has to say this time. It, it again goes back to, the concept or, or the reality that they don't want to hear what he has to say. They don't want to hear the message that Jesus has for them. So they just, let's just ignore that. Let's pretend like Jesus didn't say it. It's a very interesting thing to be following around a guy that you think is the Messiah. Following around a guy that you believe is going to save all the people. Following around a guy, even if they misunderstand it triumphalistically, even if they misunderstand, they believe that he is going to be the one that rescues them all. They're following him around, but they don't want to hear what he has to say. They only want the... the um, they only want the spoils of his victory. They do not want to walk in the way that he walks. And so this time when he predicts his death, they just ignore it. First they rebuke it. Then they're confused by it. Now they ignore it. How do we know that they ignore it? In verse 35, after Jesus has already said what he said in chapter 9, this happens. In James and John, the sons of Zebedee come up to him. This is daring. They're not just talking behind his back anymore. James and John come up to him to say, Teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that us, by the way? Jesus says lots of things all throughout Scripture. We ignore most of those things all throughout Scripture. We're like, yeah, Jesus said that, but you know how Jesus was. You know, Jesus is, he's a little intense. You know Jesus. He says things strong. He was a prophet. You can't, you know, that was just, and so we reinterpret radically everything that Jesus says so it doesn't have to apply in any way that makes us uncomfortable in our time, in our culture, right? Well, that was just Jesus. You know how he is, and you know when he lived. It was different, right? Because everything's different because we do not want to listen to most of what is in this book, right? So like most of us, they come up to Jesus, having ignored everything that he had to say, and they say to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. If we're being honest, that sentence defines why most of us claim to be Christ followers. We claim to be Christ followers because we want Jesus to do for us whatever we ask of him. We have confused Jesus with genie. We have confused Jesus with a wish grantor. We have confused a, 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 a Lord with a Disney character who will grant us three wishes if we rub him the right way. We have a confusion about 
that, and they have a confusion too. So I do think this defines how most of us act. They say, teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I'll give them this. Their request is better than a lot of our requests, right? Because our requests are like, Jesus, a new house. Jesus, uh, make my kids not like my kids. Jesus, uh, you know, give me money. We have lots of requests like that. Their request is this. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Now, at least their request is to be close to Jesus. The problem is their motivation for being close to Jesus is completely wrong, right? At least their request is to be close to Jesus. Our requests are, are range from, from serious to silly. I think they're, they're similar, but at least their request is, Jesus, let us be close to you. They didn't ask for a new car or chariot in their day, horse, camel, uh, whatever their chosen mode of transportation. They don't ask for that. They don't ask to, to, for, for anything. They just want to be close to him. Let us be on your right and even left. But the reality is they understand and they're still thinking triumphalistically is that Jesus is going to destroy everyone that's ever come against them. Jesus is going to destroy their enemies and when he does, his entourage will be the most respected one and one of them will be on his right and one of them will be on their left and it goes back to what? The pursuit of greatness. People will see me and they'll know. Finally, they'll get that John and James, the sons of Zebedee, are all that. Finally, people will know who I am, right? Because the reality is, for most of us, money and cash and all of those sorts of things, all of those things that we would pursue are really not about those things, but rather they are about meeting an emotional need all of us have for recognition, for appreciation, for being known. All of us want to be known emotionally as great. All of us want to be known emotionally as wonderful. All of us want to be emotionally accepted. All of us want those sorts of, sorts of things and everything else. Our desire for the Lamborghini and the big house and, and, and all of those sorts of things are about needing an emotional need. Their request to sit next to Jesus is about their emotional need for recognition and greatness, although it is to sit next to him. Uh, so then in verse 38, Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus says to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for, for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus gives them a prophecy, by the way, that seems like an awful prophecy. And, and I, I'm not, we don't know their reaction or what level they, they catch it, but they're not ready yet to experience, to experience uh, the baptism that Jesus experiences to drink the cup that he drinks, but they will be because Jesus' disciples, all with the exception of, of, um, with the exception of John, are going to die early lives on behalf or for the cause of Jesus. And so Jesus prophesies to him, yeah, you're going to drink it, but they're not ready yet and they, they don't know it yet. And then he says to him, but to sit at my right hand or left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who has been prepared. And when the 10, the other 10 hear it, they began to become indignant at James and John. They're mad. They're like, they think that Jesus has told them that those two are going to get sit, sit closer. They're indignant at James and John because they want to be at Jesus' right hand. And how dare James and John ask for it first? 
So their jealousy kicks in. And Jesus calls them to them and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, he's like, you guys, you want to be leaders, but you think being leaders is about getting to tell people what to do, to yell at people, about saying, look at me, I'm in charge. Look at me. I am the great grand poobah of this sort of thing. That's how the Gentiles treated them. He's like, that's not how we function. That is not how, how, that is not the way of my kingdom. And you guys think it is. He says, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever should be great among you must be your servant. The way of the kingdom is the way of service. And whoever will be first amongst you must be a slave of all. He says it to them again. If you want to follow me, you've got to be a servant of all. You can't be self uh, 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 you can't be pursuing self. You can't be pursuing greatness. You can't be pursuing recognition. If you want to be a, 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 if you want to be great, you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. No one wants to hear that, right? When's the last time you said we we've got you tapped for a leadership position? Great. What's my leadership position? do well your leadership position is to wait on everybody else right we don't like that we don't be, want to be waited on think about in our culture waiters are and waitresses are greatly a greatly disrespected class and it's like a super hard job because they're dealing with all kinds of people and i'll be honest with you i do it myself like i get super annoyed when i'm like you got one job and your one job is to bring me something to drink when my glass is empty why is this not happening right but they're, they're out there working, and the waiters and the waitresses, that's not an easy job. And Jesus says, you want to be great in God's kingdom? Become a waiter and a waitress for everybody else. We don't want to hear that. Because that's not the job we're looking for. See, we want to own the restaurant. We want to manage the restaurant. We want to be in charge of the restaurant. We want to be known as the one who prepared the, the table. We want to be known as the one who set the beautiful table. We want to make the wonderful food, invite the people in, and sit at the table with them, and then receive their accolades for the wonderful taste of the foods that have been set before them. But that is not our calling in Christ, and that is not our job. First off, that is not even the job that Jesus came for uh, verse 48 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is a sense in which Jesus will come again, and he will come in glory, and he will come in power, and he will come in all of that. But, but he came the first time as a servant, and he came to wait the tables. We don't want to wait the tables. We want to sit at the tables and receive the accolades. We want to prepare the table and put great spreads and have people say, oh, look at you. Look what you've done. Look at what you've given us. We have done nothing. We have given nothing. The truth of Scripture and the reality of Scripture is this. We had nothing to give. Only one person has ever set a table. It was God the Father. Only one person made it possible for us to sit at the table. It was God the Son. Jesus went to a cross to rescue us. He is the one that we claim to follow, and we want a job description or a job responsibility that is higher than his own. If you would claim to be a Jesus follower, you cannot want a position greater than Jesus. You are then not following Jesus. You are attempting to lead him. And that does not 
will not and cannot end well. The way of the kingdom is not about being first. It is about being last. That hurts sometimes, right? I have been in ministry now full-time here for, for 15 years. Not every day is a peach, guys. Not every day is wonderful. Not every day is great. Some days are struggles. Some days hurt. That's my job. You have a job. And your job might have days where it sinks. But you, if you are an emissary or a representative of Jesus in your place of employ, you need to go in as a servant of all. We don't like that message. None of us want to hear it. And yet, that's the Bible. That's God's word. When you come into the congregation, you will have different roles, different responsibilities, different things to do, but all of us will be called to be a servant of all. We do not want to hear it. None of us. We want greatness. And our only solace, I guess, our only hope we can take away from this is that those who walked with Jesus every day, those who walked with Jesus face to face, had to hear the same message three times. This is the third time they hear it, and they still don't get it. And this is my suspicion, is that in this life, on this side of the return of Christ, and this side of Christ making all things new, on this side of new creation, we will have to daily, daily remind ourselves that if we want to be great, we must be servants. If we want to be first, we must be last. If we want life, we find it in a cross. We must remind ourselves of those things. We do not want to hear them often, but that is the way of Jesus. And let me suggest then this, that I think is an accurate statement about, about the text. My suspicion is this, as you go, but what about that? That's not the good way. That's not the good life. What if the way of Jesus is the good life? What if everything you've been told is the good life isn't the good life? What if being told that pursuing greatness isn't, isn't great? What if being told that pursuing recognition isn't worth it? What if I told you that being first isn't all it's cracked up to be? What if walking with Jesus in his way, in his humility, with his cross, being the servant of all is what you were made for? And in doing so, your fulfillment would come upon you and that you would become closer to him, that you would know him more, that you would know him greater, that your life would improve emotionally, spiritually, and every other way. What if you were made to follow Jesus in this way? And what if the good life is wrapped up in taking up your cross and following what if the good life is wrapped up not in pursuing greatness, but pursuing Jesus in service? And what if to be first, we decided to be last, and we discover that when we do it, we discover Jesus in the midst of that, and it becomes suddenly very much worth it all? What if that's the truth? That's my, that's my suspicion. Pray with me.